You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My guest today is T. Carragason Boyle the author of 30 books of fiction, including most recently, The Harder They Come, The Terranauts, The Relive Box, Outside Looking In, Talk to Me, and I Walk Between the Raindrops. He received a PhD degree in 19th century British literature from the University of Iowa in 1977, his MFA from the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop in 1974, and his BA in English and History from SUNY Potsdam in 1968. He's been a member of the English department at the University of Southern California since 1978, where he is a distinguished professor of English. He's with me here to talk about his new novel, Blue Skies. On the show, we talked about writing climate fiction, dealing with heavy themes while having a lot of fun, his influences, short stories, revision, crickets, and more. Before we bring him on, a little reminder and a tiny nudge. If this show has helped you on your writing journey, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing and become a supporter. There are perks. Any amount at all helps us to continue doing what we're doing. For more than 20 years, the show broadcast at KUCI on the UC Irvine campus. During COVID, Marie and I did the show from our homes and never returned to the station, but that required investing in equipment, so even a few dollars a month will help us continue bringing the show to you. And now, for my talk with T.C. Boyle, author of Blue Skies. So I am so glad to talk with you again. I, it's been, well, it's been a few years, but you were first on the show in October of 2004. I looked it up. You were you were on back then. And hey Barbara, well, those were the good old days, right? But <laughs> today, today isn't so bad either. Today isn't so bad. <laughs> but um, anyway, let's start with blue skies. I have I have so much to talk to you about, and maybe uh, we could start as we usually do with you talking about a bit about how the story came about. Well, this book is a companion piece to the year 2000's A Friend of the Earth. Hmm. Then I was concerned about global warming and uh, species extinction and what was going on with uh, our meteorological systems. And so I projected in that book from 2000 to 2026. By the time we were halfway there, we were already living in that novel. So that novel has the the um, the fire followed by the flood and the debris flow, and it also has a pandemic. Yes, <laughs> yes, hallelujah! But now there is no debate anymore. Uh, we are living with it. Everybody has been affected by it anywhere in the world. It's happening now. What do we do? So in this book, I wanted to present uh, a relatively ordinary family. Uh, three principal characters, the mother, Ottilie, her daughter, Kat, who was the heroine of the book, and her son, Hooper, who is an entomologist. Uh, and we see them in two locations. They are in Santa Barbara, where, where I am now. Uh, and Kat moves to Florida because her boyfriend's mother died and left them a beach house, which they could never have afforded. So I've got the irony and the fun of us Californians uh, being burned alive and having no water whatsoever. And the Floridians who have the exact opposite problem, way too much water, sea rise. So I think you were one of the first novelists to actually focus on climate fiction. I mean, now we have the category, right? We have the category mm. of climate fiction. Yeah. A few years we did not have. And and was was that book the first that you talked about climate change? Specifically, yes. But if you would look back through my 31 books to the very beginning, my book called Descent of Man, you'll see that, and I, you know, I don't know this. I didn't say these are going to be my themes. Your themes grow along with you. My main theme has been us as an animal species living within our environment. So I've been an environmental writer without even 
knowing it or thinking about it from the beginning. Um, yeah, there's some bad weather in some of my earlier books. There's a lot on um, uh, species extinction as well. Um, uh, exploring the, the natural world with um, when the killing is done of uh, a few years back, um, I went out to the Channel Islands here with the biologists to, oh, there it is, to um, go with them on their rounds and assess the problems out there with regard to invasive species. And we also, of course, have invasive species in the new novel as well. It's a big concern for me. And even in your short stories, I, I found your short story, one of my favorite stories of yours, Modern Love. Um, and and it's your, from your first volume and it has bugs in it. <laughs> yes. Bugs. Yeah, it's a it's a, a wacky comedy about love in the age of infection. Can you, what is love like? When I fell in love with uh, Frau B, she was then a student and so was I, and it was bliss and it was romance. And of course it was sex too. Um, we didn't think beyond that. But mm -hmm. I wrote that story, that's, that's late eighties, that story, when now everyone was concerned with transmissible diseases. Um, so I kind of had fun with that. Uh, my uh, my method, I guess, in life, in humor, and in interpersonal relations, is always to see the sarcastic and crazy way into all of our problems, which you know begin with uh, in this book, climate change, but also end with, is there God? No, there is no God. Why are we doing here? We're just an ape species. Mm -hmm. And my previous novel which we did, I don't think we talked about. No. It's about language, the, the, the experiments to teach language to our closest uh, animal ancestors, the chimpanzees, um, because what is language? Uh, what is its value to us? Um, are we just... Uh, are we just an example of evolution gone mad? We don't really need these brains. We don't need these machines. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of these themes are running throughout the books. It's not programmed by me. It's not a plan. It just happens. Well, let's talk about your characters because can we begin with Kat, who is uh, an Instagram influencer who buys a snake, which is not a spoiler. It happens right away. Then here comes Cooper. Here comes Adelie. And I know you don't outline and that you're more of an instinctual writer, I think you've said. Mm -hmm. So will you talk a bit about how you came up with these characters? Um, I mean, like, were you thinking, well, this one represents this thing, so I need someone who's the opposite of that. I mean, how does your brain work when you're coming up with characters? It doesn't work that way, <laughs> unless it's on an instinctual level. I don't have an outline, I don't write out uh, serious uh, long lists of characters. My daughter is a filmmaker and I envy her. When they're making a film, they've got photos on the wall of who, what this person might look like and who they are. I, uh, that's all internal for me. So I'm just following my instincts. It starts with Kat and she's buying a snake. Okay. I know there would be repercussions down the road. One person writing on this book said that if you have a snake in a bag in the first chapter, it's like Chekhov's gun on the mantle <laughs> in chapter one. And so, yes. So I'm working towards something, you know, with regard to cat's obliviousness. She buys uh, a Burmese python in Florida uh, as a kind of decoration put around her neck so she can be more, uh, get more, um, uh, money from being an influencer, uh, just oblivious to it. Um, but then the second chapter occurred to me, and that is her mother, Adelie, who is in her 70s and, like many of us, wants to do the right thing and uh, reduce her carbon footprint. And so that chapter has her preparing a very elegant dinner party with bugs, insects, for all the main courses. Um, it's an interesting idea. Insects uh, are uh, vital to this. Uh, and, and further, as I already said, we have her son, Cooper, the entomologist. Um, I got onto this, Barbara, because 
around 2017 or 18, there were reports in the news from the Krefeld Society in Germany, an amateur entomologist society uh, been in operation for many, many years, and they do bug counts. And they began to alarm us by saying that the population of flying insects is down drastically throughout the world. And I wondered, well, what does that mean? What about the food chain at which we are on the top, aside from the virus, that is? Um, what are we going to eat? What does it mean? And so entomology was part of this, and I was fortunate uh, enough to be able to go in the field with entomologists and find out some things about what they're doing. And so it all evolves. It all evolves from there. Oh, oh goes from there. I, you know, I, I heard you talk about um, the, the tick voodoo. Mm. And, um, I wonder if you'd like to tell that story. <laughs> sure, I find sure. completely strange. <laughs> and yeah, I I write fiction and only fiction. I mean, I have some written some essays here and there. I, I don't write poems. I, I don't write screenplays. I just want to write fiction because it's so magical for me. I never know what it will be. And there is a tremendous satisfaction in discovering what it is, but also a burden. As many listeners will know, my essay, This Monkey, My Back, in which I liken this creation of, of art or fiction in my case to a kind of drug addiction you you do it and you feel tremendous exhilaration i mean huge but then like with any drug it wears off and the next day what are you going to do well you got to do it again and again that's my life that's what i'm doing has it always been that way i mean from the start because i think you were you also studied music yes yes i wanted to be a musician and i went to the new york state uh, music college, Potsdam. Uh, I played saxophone. I could play the living hell out of it. I could play it upside down on my head. I could uh, blizzard the notes across the page. I could sight transpose, but I flunked my audition. The reason being, I had no idea how it was supposed to feel. I didn't learn how music felt until some years later when I was a singer in a band and you don't have to do anything. You just do it. it there it is. It's in front of you and you just do it. And by the way, writing is like this too. Uh, the, the control part is minimal once you get into it. It's just the same thing the reader's finding on the other side. It's just a dream that is evolving. And these, this keyboard here and these, these notes like playing on the saxophone, they are the way to translate it for us. So all that is good. Um, I still love music. I don't perform music anymore because I can't possibly want to do two things. I couldn't, I couldn't satisfy myself by being a, a mediocre musician. Besides which, had I been in the, the bar bands, I'd be dead for 40 years now. So this is a safer occupation. And also, truthfully, by the time I was doing that, I was completely committed to this dream of this fiction through 31 books. And I hope, I hope there'll be more after this. Sure. Well, what you do with fiction reminds me of what um, the late Andrew Vax did with his writing. I don't know if you're familiar with him. No, I'm not. But many of his listeners, he died a few years ago. He was a, a, an attorney in New York and he um, focused on child abuse cases. And when he came on the show way back, you know, long ago, he talked about how um, that his fiction did more for child abuse to make people aware of what was going on than anything he ever did in the courtroom. Yeah. And, and I think it's sort of the same with your novels, right? I mean, like you're, they're entertaining, they're engaging, but you're also putting a spotlight on climate change and on what's happening in the world. Illegal immigration in the Tortilla Curtain, for instance. Right. Yeah. Yes. And I'm, I'm pleased that I have that effect. Uh, people come up to me and say, you know, I never, uh, had any idea what's going on with, with uh, immigration from the South. I just see people on the street and, and ignore them. And now I can't anymore. Okay, great. That makes me feel great. You know, my readers know what my politics are. Exactly. They could have a hundred questions and know how I stand. But I do not think that art is the place for advocacy. 
yes, I'm alarmed about things. And so I'm exploring them and creating a scenario that may move you and may cause you to rethink things or change your behavior or whatever. But that's not my purpose. Mm -hmm. My purpose is as an artist to create a work of art for my own self. Uh, things disturb me. I want to explore them. And the only way I can really do that is by creating a fictional scenario. I would love to hear you read. Will you read from Blue Skies? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is an excerpt just from the very beginning. So we don't have to have any setup. We don't have to explain who's who. Mm -hmm. And this is the first chapter, and the chapters are titled. This one is called They Were Like Jewelry. They were like jewelry, living jewelry. And she could see herself wearing one wrapped around her shoulders to Bobo's or the cornerstone and sitting at a sidewalk table while people strolled by and pretended not to notice. It would make a statement, that was for sure. She put on a tube top so you could see the contrast it made with her bare skin, black, definitely black. And she'd wear her black jeans too, and maybe her fedora. And she just looked down at her drink or up at Todd as if nothing was out of the ordinary. And he'd go along with it too, she was sure he would. They were in that phase of their relationship where he'd given her a ring and they moved in together and she could have just about anything she wanted. Except the baby. Are you joking or what? I'm no way even close to being ready for that. And plus the expense, Jesus. He wouldn't let her have a dog either, or even a cat. He was allergic, hair, dander, fleas. And did she have any idea of what his parents had to spend on inhalers and injections and the rest of it when he was a kid? She didn't. And at this point, she didn't care. Talk about impulse buying. The minute she walked through the door and saw them glittering there in their plexiglass cases, she knew she had to have one. Thank you. Good? Yeah. One more? That's enough? You know, you could go on. I would love to hear you. Okay, let me go on to uh, one, one, two more paragraphs or so. Okay. The shop was called Herps. And it was located on the fringe of the shopping district where the fast food places were and the auto supply and a couple hole-in-the-wall Haitian and Cuban restaurants. She wouldn't even have noticed it, let alone pushed through the door if she hadn't been so bored. Todd was having the car detailed and he couldn't just leave it there and trust them to do the job. No, he had to look over their shoulders while they plied their rags and toothbrushes and sealants, making sure they were on top of it. That was just the way he was, a perfectionist. And he liked to say that the two of them were a good match because she was an imperfectionist, which might have been passive aggressive, but really wasn't far from the truth. So opposites attract. Wasn't that the way of biology? She'd been looking for a bar, thinking a mojito would brighten her afternoon when she saw the snake there in the window, thick as a truck tire and stretched out on an artificial branch canted up off the floor at a 45 degree angle. It was chocolate colored with gold latticework that ran the length of it like a pattern in a catalog. Its eyes were hard, cold beads. Its tongue flicked in and out. Most of all, it was present in a way most things in this world definitely weren't. She stared at it for a long moment, falling into a kind of trance till the reflection of a car wheeling by on the street behind her brought her out of it. Of course, she'd seen snakes before at the zoo, in the nature films on TV, smeared across the blacktop on one country road or another. But she never really looked at one, not until now, when the abstraction and the actual fused into an idea, a want, a need, a sudden need so pressing it constricted her throat. She paused a moment to dig the Dasani bottle out of her purse and take a long, lukewarm swallow before she swung round and stepped inside. Person, I, I think I think I've noticed your novels. I've read I've read a bunch of them. Are in third person. Um, is that why is that? I mean, is that you just obviously prefer third person? Um, no, not necessarily. Uh, it's a bag of tricks. Look at all the stories and all the novels. There are several that have I narrators. In fact, experimentally, uh, in the Terranauts, we have three I narrators with contrasting points of view. Uh, the inner circle is, is an eye narrator. Uh, part of, uh, of uh, Friend of the Earth is an eye narrative. 
Uh, it just depends on what it what feels right. Now, obviously, in a third person, the author can step in and can go beyond what the characters know or think. And that can be an advantage, but also it can be an advantage if it's an eye narrator or a limited point of view in which they don't know and we know. We can, we can look over their shoulder and we can see where they're going wrong. In the case of this book, and I would say, uh, well, and it talked to me too, uh, the last one. I've got a very, very strongly oriented third person so that the author isn't stepping in. Uh, it's almost like a first person because you are privy to their thoughts and prejudices and attitudes and so on. Uh, and yet it's not, and yet it's still a narrative going forward. Um, it enables me as in a first person to show when they're being foolhardy to show their prejudices, uh, their obliviousness, as you, what you just heard about Cat, you know, going in to get this uh, <laughs> dangerous invasive snake that's killing everything in the Everglades, um, just uh, you know, might look nice around her shoulders when she's out on a date and attract attention. She saw a model once wearing one, wearing one, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's, it's a hard question to answer, Barbara, because every story is different. I think you'll see, find in, in my work, if you're counting, there are probably more first person narratives in the short stories. And maybe that's because I would say probably two thirds of my novels are in third person. So I'm, I'm breaking it up and the stories, you can create a character, first person talking to you, and then you're going, and then the la my last book from, from last year, I Walk Between the Raindrops, the title story, which is my favorite, um, has an eye narrator who uh, thinks a lot of himself and is unconscious of many, many things going on in the world. So there are all sorts of ways of approaching a story. And uh, when I begin a story, it just comes to me. Very rarely have I started in first person and switched to third or vice versa, but it has happened occasionally. Do you need to be completely through with a book before you go on to the next one? I mean, are you thinking of ideas? Were you thinking of ideas before you got into Blue Skies and Blue Skies? You said, this is a novel. This isn't a, isn't a story. And, you know, you're so prolific with stories and novels. How do you know which is which? How do you know when something comes to you and you go, I'm going to have to spend time on that. That's going to be a novel or this one is a moment in time. This is a story. Uh, I'm pretty rigid. I never work on two things at once. And if you look back through all the books, you'll see that <laughs> I didn't do this purposely. It's just the way it worked out. Um, I'll have uh, a book of stories, two novels, a book of stories. And that repeats. And that's because in between the novels, I have a period in which uh, I'm sort of gestating. And uh, also, it's, I've just given birth. I, 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 what am I going to do? So I have jotted down story ideas, especially from the news and the crazy times we're living in that get crazier every day. And I want to reflect those. And so uh, then I have an opportunity to write stories. And when those ideas peter out, then the next novel, and then the conclusion of that storybook after that novel. So for instance, after this one, I've written six new stories that will be part of the next collection of stories after the next novel. And um, one of them, which is going to be an Esquire in July. July seems like a long time away, doesn't it? It's not, <laughs> it's coming soon. And it's called Sanctuary. And it's my addressing the idea of the, uh, the MAGA fascists uh, that were driving me crazy while I was locked into this novel. In it, you will meet a woman with, with a MAGA hat on. And it also has to do with the environment as well. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and several other stories about all sorts of topics and things that um, I can't address when I'm locked into a novel. Sure. You know, I want to ask you about um, a scene in when the killing's done, that you have one of the best scenes, um, um, a, a catastrophic boat disaster in this, in, close to the beginning of this book, 
And I found it just so amazing. This scene, I just, I just had to keep reading it. How do you do that? So I don't know if you've ever been in a catastrophic boat disaster, but this, these are so difficult to write, especially when you've never experienced it. Can you talk about that? I mean, it, the book was published in 2011. Maybe it's dimmed a bit in terms of how you got into it and wrote it as you did. But I would love to hear anything you have to say about that scene. Hmm. Uh, a lot of what I imagine in these scenarios are things that I hope won't happen to me. <laughs> and I think part of the skill a good writer has is to be able to inhabit anybody. Uh, female characters, for instance, uh, even in some instances, I've written from the point of view of animals in Talk to Me. Mm -hmm. I've also done chapters in the point of view from a chimp. Uh, it's a challenge. Uh, it's it's human. It's it's uh, it's something that stimulates me. And so, with regard to the prelude to that book, which is set on our child islands and requires both to get there. Uh, I knew about this actual, I read about this actual uh, boat accident that happened many years ago. And uh, I just jammed it up. I studied the boats. I went to, you know, with people on boats and I found out about it. And what would it have been like? And furthermore, there, it's about invasive species on the Channel Islands. And how did the rats get there? Mm -hmm. Well, from a sailing ship that crashed on Anacapa Island, you know, 200 years ago. Uh, it's fascinating to me. So yeah, I wanted you, your heart pounding in that opening. Uh, will she survive? Will she not? Uh, she's in the water. She's swimming. She sees her, her husband die in front of her face in the, in the waves. Uh, this kind of thing happens. Probably happening now. Look at the refugees in the Mediterranean. But we talked about the voodoo of it earlier. Um, Whistling past the graveyard. I hope it's not going to happen to me. So I inflict things on my characters that happen to people out in the world just to see what it means and how they might respond. So something that happened to Cooper in Blue Skies happened to you. Yes, this is the strangest thing. Yeah. <laughs> so Cooper, as we said, is the entomologist. And he is dating an acarologist. This is someone who studies ticks. And he went with her one day into the field to collect ticks so she can study them. And you drag a, a white sheet through the chaparral and see what falls on it. And ticks fall on it. She puts them in a little vial and studies them for disease and so on. Um, well, you know, we have a lot of bad weather out here. This is in Santines Valley. And it was one of those days where the devil winds and sheep was flapping and they couldn't collect anything. So they went up to a tavern at the top of the pass, a place a lot like the Cold Spring Tavern. And they danced to the band and they drank rum and Coke and they had a great old time. And when they got home, getting ready for bed, uh, Cooper took off his shirt and saw that on his forearm was a tick attached, a tick larva, in fact. And uh, then the chapter ends. And then we go to, to, uh, to back to Cat and then to Audley and finally we'll get to Cooper. But in the interval, before I got back to Cooper, I went out into the chaparral. I'm looking at the hills right there. And exactly that happened to me. Uh, my arm began to hurt like holy hell a couple of uh, hours later. And that doesn't happen if you're getting Lyme disease, which I've had several times. Um, then I noticed that I had a tick larva on my forearm. It's astonishing. Uh, it didn't just give me Lyme. It gave me uh, cellulitis, a bacterial infection of the epidermis that can be very serious. It can develop into necrotizing fasciitis. It can uh, cause loss of limb, loss of life even. Meanwhile, it was COVID. So I had to hold up my forearm to my camera for my doctor and he prescribed a heavy duty antibiotic. And uh, by the way, first he had me draw a, a, the margin around it with 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 a magic marker to see if it spread and it did it spread way past that and all the way to the other side of the arm and it made me very nervous but after about eight or nine days it began to recede and here i am look i still have an arm i could show you on on zoom uh immediately i inflicted that on cooper when i wrote the next chapter 
But that is so strange. So very, very strange in the way of the mystery of this planet that I only view in a scientific way and not in a mystical way. Mm -hmm. Wow. Has that ha ever happened before? Writing and- Yes, yes. Several times I've written things that kind of come true in, in small ways like that, but also in larger ways, like a friend of the earth, a friend of the earth, you know, here we are. Right, right. How do you keep track of all the moving parts of a novel? How, I mean, is it all in your head? Are you, do you have anything like, I mean, I see your office. I don't see butcher paper on the wall with charts. And No, we don't do that. Uh, rum. Rum? The word rum. No, no, no. Uh, uh, I have notes. I have a notebook. Uh, I shot ahead when I make discoveries of what's happening and what it means. Um, and before I start, you know, I've done research and I have some scenarios when you, it's like writing a term paper, right? everybody's had that experience. You collect some material on a subject and you make notes. You may never even see the notes again, but in the process of doing it, you jot down some ideas of what this might be. And so then when it's time, I follow it to see how the story will evolve. And it's basically, again, it's an organic structure and it's, it's in my head. One thing that helps is I read aloud to my long-suffering and very patient wife uh, if I've advanced a page or two. Uh, I just need to hear it out loud. So it's so important to me, the rhythm of it. It's like music. It is music mm -hmm. on the page. And in the process of doing that, somehow... Unlike when I'm just reading it off the screen silently to myself, I begin to make little leaps of who this character is and what might happen and where it might go. And then I'll say to her, well, I think this might happen, that might happen. And then it's, I'm done for the day and I go back the next day and see if that works and where it's going. So when you're reading aloud, are you, and, and you're reading to somebody, are you reading it to get any sort of feedback at all or just to read no. it and hear no. it? Could, no, would the same thing happen if you were alone reading it aloud? Probably not, mm -hmm. because I'm performing it. Uh -huh. And as you know, I love to go before crowds and, and perform my work. And I don't say read it, because reading has these uh, academic connotations. I'm performing it. It's a, it's a show. It's for fun. It, you come to hear me uh, read in public. Uh, you're in a theater. You're seated. You get the kind of story that we all loved as children my mother read to me to be read to to get to just let it wash over you i'm doing it to hear it and to hear its beat every once in a while my wife will say oh well you know i, I feel this way or that but it's i'm not reading it to her to, uh, uh, for any critique and i also when i turn in a book or a story it's finished as far as i'm concerned and there is uh, yes, I love my editors and they help, but it's basically what I turn in is what you're going to see on the page. Mm. It's just the way I work. It's the way I've always worked. So then what is revision like? What is your revision process? It's perpetual. It goes on day by day, line by line. Some days I go, I go backwards. You know, uh, I can't feel good unless I feel that everything behind me is solid and perfect, as perfect as I can make it. Uh, some writers amaze me they they get kind of bored with where they are in the given manuscript and they jump ahead and write the kitchen scene because it's so exciting but then it's out of order and out of sync mm -hmm. and by the way all of those writers all of them without exception are now in mental hospitals <laughs> so yeah it has to fit yeah hmm. so when you because you i think you type directly on the keyboard is yes. that I've always composed my handwriting is so bad. So before computers were invented, I used my Olivetti portable and my fingers were really strong. Mm -hmm. Now they're much weaker. But uh, this is for, for a perfectionist. It's a miracle because it can be made perfect every day. So do you have like a special font? Do you have a particular font you have to use on the on the? No, I mean, it's just regular, whatever it is. It's just a regular program. Okay. I do like to see it on the page, though. That's another thing, uh, which you don't get with handwriting. Mm -hmm. I like, I, I always use space and a half, too. So it, it will be almost exactly the page as it will appear in a book. Mm -hmm. And I, I like it as, a, as, a, as an artwork. I like to see 
the way the columns work and the way you jump a paragraph or you include the dialogue or put some italics in or whatever it is. Um, that is a, a kind of graphic art for me. Uh, so we don't, I'm sorry. I mean, probably nobody wants to hear this. It's just no, everybody, everybody works individually and finds his or her own way, which is why, by the way, all books, I hope you haven't written one, on writing, how to do it, are bogus. <laughs> they are interesting in that you love this particular writer and you want to see how he or she did it. Okay, you want to know about them? Great. But as far as how they pursue their artistic career and what they do and what their rituals are, it has nothing to do with you. You are completely independent and you find your own rituals. Yeah. No, I think everybody wants to hear the process, you know, how different writers do it. I mean, because it is, you know, you're sitting alone in your office and it is can be, you know, daunting trying to get through and, and you want to be encouraged that, you know, maybe you have a way that nobody's ever talked about that that's okay, right? This way madness lies, yeah. Locked in your own head all day long is why all writers are drug addicts and, uh, and criminals. Um, uh, wow. I am not interested in how other writers do it and never have been. It's irrelevant to me. I, I, I love the finished work. I have many, many gods and heroes among all the writers in the world. But how they do it doesn't really interest me that much. Although I did have one of my favorite writers, Kazuo Shiguro, once said to the, in the press that for a year, he doesn't do anything. He just thinks. He just walks around thinking. And then he sits down and writes these masterpieces, you know, like... Uh, uh, I don't know how that could possibly be, but everybody works in a different way. And it's just kind of curious, you know, that a bird might have a red wing instead of a black wing. But, but how does that affect you as an artist? Because art, as we know, is coming from our models. We have models of, uh, in the beginning, whether it's in music or, or, or graphic art or in fiction or poetry. You glom on to certain writers who speak to you deeply. We don't know why or how or what this particular story is or how it affects you, but it affects you. And then you study it over and over. You read it over and over as a fan, you just love it. And you do that a long time for a lot. That's your apprenticeship. And eventually, if you're talented, you make a synthesis of everything that you've ever put in there. And if you're lucky, something comes out that is unique. So with Blue Skies, was the beginning always the beginning? Yeah, everything, uh, again, I'm completely rigid. Everything progresses line by line throughout. There's never any changing around, very rarely. I mean, I wouldn't say absolutely never, but very rarely would I change anything around or uh, interpose other uh, scenes in or anything else. Has it always been like that? Yes. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> okay, I'm just thinking. Uh, uh, when I was an undergrad, I was a really bad student. I was a real bad boy, and I didn't do what I was supposed to do. What got me through was I had a great writing ability, which I didn't know. I kind of discovered it because my papers were always late. <laughs> so, you know, uh, after they're two weeks late and it's three in the morning, I'm just I'm just typing it. There it is. And, and the structure and everything else has to come because I don't have any time to revise it, you know. Uh, now, of course, I do have time to revise, but that's my method. It's uh, it's like playing the saxophone. It's just happening. And yet you don't outline. No, but I will, you know, you look at my notebooks, which are, you know, in the Ransom Library now. Um, uh, I mean, pages and pages of stuff. Uh, this might happen, that might happen, and crossouts, and even some possible lines or paragraphs. And basically, basically, no, it's all happening on the page. And if you eliminate something and it's gone forever, you know, a paragraph or something, uh, well, okay, maybe you'll have another one. And if it's really a tight thing, I might print out a page to make sure that that's not totally gone. But really, it's just moving forward in the moment. That's the joy of it. So, and I wanted to ask you um, about something you said earlier in terms of how, how the words look on the page. And that is, um, 
You know, if you see, you know, you print out your pages and you see a page is so text heavy, lots of paragraphs, margin to margin, will you go, might you go, you know what, that needs a little white space. I need to insert a little dialogue or maybe a few one word sentences. I don't know. I don't know what it would be. But I mean, does does how the page look affect you in that way, affect your writing in that way? Not so much. No, it happens in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I might see in the moment that we've got two big blocky paragraphs and uh, they might cut a one line paragraph or there'd be a couple of sentences that are just uh, straightforward declarative sentences. It's It has to do more, it, it is visual of course on the page, but it has to do more with the beat. The beat of it is so important to me. Uh, as with poets, for instance, and also as with poets, they like to see how it looks and arrange it on the page. I have that too. Uh, I don't know if other fiction writers work in this way. I don't, I don't really know what they do. But for me, yeah, there's the visual component of how it looks graphically, but more than anything, it's the beat. So if there was a long paragraph, and I do sometimes write real long sentences for fun, mm -hmm. but then again, you hit the symbol a couple of times and then you have maybe a straightforward passage or some boom, boom, boom lines. It, um, I always listen to music when I work, as you know, always. I've never written anything without music playing. And uh, it gives me a kind of melodic background, I guess. How do you choose what you listen to when you're writing? Does it depend on the story or the novel you're working on or what? I would think so, especially when I'm writing historical novels, but it ain't necessarily so. Whatever I just feel like listening to, usually it's my jazz files or my classical files. Uh, when I'm doing emails or whatever it is, then it's my love, my true love, which is rock and roll, the blues, soul music, and so on, loud. Mm -hmm. But not when I'm working. When I'm working, it's gonna be classical or jazz. Mm -hmm. So the cover is so gorgeous. This is such a gorgeous color cover. Oh, yeah. When did you, I mean, did you have anything to do with it or did no. they show you and you were perfect or? They show me stuff and say, you know, do you like it or not? And if I really hate it, I'll tell them. But basically they're the art department and I trust them and I like them. In this case, uh, it's particularly effective. I think it's great design. And so much so that the Brits and the Germans also use the same cover because they have their ideas and their art departments too. So yeah, I, I, I love this one. Yeah, it's, it's so gorgeous. And then I praise the artist. <laughs> I'm praising the artist right now. Great. You yeah. know, it's a team here. I don't design the books. I write the books. So it's really a thrill when, when you love the design they've come up with. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's frameable, you know, it's like. Yeah, it is kind of cool. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. It's beautiful. Who are your influences? Can you remember early influences? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, look at my early books. They're they're pretty wild, very wild, and and more uh, surreal. You could call some of what is in Blue Skies kind of surreal and black humor, of course. But that's where I'm coming from. So in the beginning, when I first started to write, I was very influenced by the absurd absurdist playwrights uh, by Gunter Grass. Uh, Calvino, Garcia Marquez, uh, Borges, uh, uh, in America, uh, Robert Coover, John Barth, John Gardner, uh, uh, Byron O'Connor, people who were doing something that is out of the ordinary, uh, uh, wicked in, in, in humor, uh, larger perspective than just the stories you know, that you saw in the old New Yorker so much where it's just a sort of biographical thing about some guy who went to uh, Harvard or something. Okay, that's great. And, and many writers, brilliant writers are totally autobiographical, but I'm not. I am, I say, let's shake it up. Let's find out something. Let's, let's do it. And so those are the writers that turned me on when I was first beginning to write. And that's, those are the ones who whom I owe my allegiance, which is not to say that as I grew as a writer, I didn't experiment with straightforward realism as well, as you'll find in the, in the stories. Uh, uh, San Miguel, San Miguel, which is about San Miguel Island off of our coast, is written without irony. Could I do this? In the voice of two women who were uh, living out there in different periods with their families. And I had a, a fragmentary uh, diary 
uh, from one and, uh, and a little memoir from the other. And they were not using a wicked modern sensibility. They were telling it like it is. And so I tried to do that. And it was very difficult at first, but then it came. And I'm so pleased with that novel because it, uh, it presented a, a big challenge to, to write a straightforward realistic novel without any of the sarcastic, uh, ironic kind of humor that comes to me so naturally, as you find in, in Blue Skies, for instance. Mm. The ending of Blue Skies, uh, we're not gonna talk specifically about it, but it was um, rather hopeful um, and sweet. And you know, this, is, this novel gets pretty dark and then you end on this sweet note. Talk about endings and coming yeah. up with that ending. What a surprise, my dear. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> um, one thing I learned is, uh, yeah, of course, we are doomed. We're, our species is doomed. Uh, the weather and the climate is forever altered. Uh, we're going to have smaller and smaller suites of species. We're going to have more and more pandemics, more fires, more floods. We are over 8 billion people. It, there is no hope. I'm sorry. But, but <laughs> we do have art. And... Uh, the kind of time frame that we look at as humans is so minuscule compared to the larger eons of the world. And so, very specifically, here I am, you know, in this doomsday scenario, and I'm particularly interested in the butterflies that appear in the end, the monarchs. I, uh, I have a natural yard here and I planted milkweed, lots of milkweed for the monarchs. Um, it was so depressing. I already told you about the Kreffeld Society and the Germans seeing that there are fewer flying insects. Well, the monarchs are in trouble and they were in very big trouble when I started writing the book. But we had two years when conditions improved. And so maybe I was reflecting that, that uh, we don't know. And, and by the way, the drought that we're in here, mm -hmm. and I was writing the book during the drought, but Maybe it's just a blip, but it broke this winter. We had four times the rain that we had last year. It's a joy. Um, so yeah, maybe there's a little bit of hope. Uh, in the Tortilla Curtain, for instance, the very end of that book, there is a gesture of hope. So it's not all gloomy. And even if it is gloomy, it's hilariously gloomy, right? <laughs> You know, it's so funny because you, you know, it, what was I, I was thinking about you, like how you present, which is that just like your work, it's, it has a serious undertone and you seem to have this, a serious sort of demeanor. And yet, and yet there's such hilarity and, and it seems that you probably can whoop it up pretty well too. And I was just thinking about, you know, writers and what we, even when we're not writing autobiographical fiction, it's still somewhat autobiographical, right? In terms of demeanor or how oh, sure. we present? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I am manic depressive, but I have an outlet and that is this dream that I'm dreaming every day. And then, you know, I'm perfectly happy to go out and out in the wilderness, go out to the local bar. I love everybody. Everything is great. Um, we have, in one of my stories, I say, you know, um, speaking of death, well, all we know is being alive. So it's safest to kind of keep it that way. And by the way, I also like to keep all my blood inside my body at all times. <laughs> uh, it's a mysterious, depressing world. We have death hanging over us. What are we going to do? You know, bolton roulet. You know, later today, uh, yeah, I worked all morning. I'm talking with you. I'm going to talk with somebody else later. Then I'm going to go out. Maybe I'll walk down to my bar. I've been out on, on the beach a lot lately. Have you noticed the, the problem with the seals? There's one seal I've been monitoring out uh, on Summerland Beach. I'm outside. I'm having fun. Uh, uh, my family is here. My daughter lives right next door. And she has two tiny little grandchildren now, uh, three and one to come tottering around. All is good. All is well. And yet, we have this human condition, which is the same 
as the ape condition, except we destroyed the ape's environment and put them in cages. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, duality, right? There's both mm -hmm. sides. Um, we're getting to the end of our talk, and, and you've done so many interviews for this book, for Blue Skies. Is there anything that you haven't been asked that you wish you were asked that you that you wish you could talk about? Well, I suppose we could talk in more detail about the bugs. Uh, I am just fascinated by nature and being in nature. If I hadn't been a writer or musician, I suppose I could have been perfectly happy being a field biologist. I, I love what they do. I love to be out of doors. I love to observe everything and see the creatures. You know, uh, is that now six or seven years ago, my publisher put me onto Twitter and I love it. It's for me, it's to be in the world and see all the gorgeous things that we see every day and odd things and, and disturbing things and make a photo and then put a caption and then have a response and back and forth. So every day when I'm walking around, I'm, I'm taking pictures of things, mainly of, of nature, mm. the beauty of it, what I'm seeing. That seal, for instance, who I hope is going to recover, but as you know, uh, the algae bloom has given the uh, built uh, the acid up through the food chain uh, in their in their prey and uh, it's, it's a neurotoxin and they are in some pretty bad shape anyway uh it's something i want to see and need to see and and to to relate to you and everybody else who's who's on twitter mm. well i've appreciated your time and and talking with you again and uh I don't think I have to wish you luck on this book or any books because all of your books become successful and that's a wonderful thing. Well, thank uh, you. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Okay, Barbara, always great to chat with you. Thanks to all of you for loving books and taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Travis Barrett who does our music and sound editing and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type. You can access our archive of shows 25 years worth at writersonwriting.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Thank you.